Hello and welcome to another episode of Jackson Talks, everybody, with me, your host, Aaron Mashvitz, a.k.a. Jackson Stone. This is episode 128 of Jackson Talks, everybody. So, Dr. Rob, welcome to the show, man. Thank you. It's awesome to be here. Thank you so much for letting me come on. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited for this conversation. And before we kind of get into the, the real meat and bones of the work that you do and all of that stuff, what you're an expert in, I have a very important question to ask you. It's, uh, it's the theme of this podcast. And um, so I, I'm pretty sure you get asked it all the time on a regular basis. It's kind of like how people say hello. So Dr. Rob, at nine o'clock this morning, how, how are you doing? Like, really, how are you doing? I'm doing great. And, and the reason why I say that with, with so emphasis is so many people go, yeah, I'm good. Yeah, I'm fine. I made, it, I made it my mission a long time ago to never have bad days, to always have an amazing day. Now, I have better days than others, but uh, I'm very good on self-checking me every single day. So, yeah, my sister arrived yesterday from England and the brother-in-law. And we're all in this. My house is huge, obviously. So we're all living in here and it's just amazing. So, yeah, fantastic today. 100%. When, when did you make that shift to never have bad days? Uh, probably about uh, 10 years ago. Uh, you know, I'd have some good days and bad days, and I suffered from trauma. So about uh, 10 years ago, I went back into treatment myself in uh, eight or 10 years ago, I can't remember, uh, in uh, Arizona to a place called The Meadows, and I got all my trauma sorted out. And when I came back, I said, that's it. I'm not going to worry about anything, because that was the main crux of the matter, was worrying about stuff. And I'm just going to live life, <clears throat> not so much one day at a time, but live life as if there's, what's the worst can happen, you know, which, I mean, most of us fear something that's not even happened. We never fear the past. We always fear the future. Probably nine out of 10 times, the fear never comes true. And when we face the fear, it disappears. So it took me a long time because I, being homeless, I always worry about money today. You know, and uh, will I go broke? Have I got enough money in the bank? And it's absolutely crazy that I would ever say that. And my wife reminds me all the time. We work very hard. We've been together for nine years. And uh, the business came back nine years ago after the meadows. And, uh, you know, we just we just try not. We have three English bulldogs, two cats. We drive the cars of our dreams. We live uh, in a house of our dreams. And we don't carry any debt for nothing. And, man, it's just awesome. And this is all based on the business that you built. Yes. Right? And yes, that definitely. were you running the business that we'll, we'll get into it, the business that you have now before you went back into treatment and then it kind of skyrocketed after or was it all kind of mixed together? Well, tw 10 years ago, um, I, I opened, we used to have a small practice out in uh, just, just past Plano. I'm going to think of the name in a second. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was out there. We had a ranch and we had, we did one person at a time usually a celebrity or something like that. And then we, uh, we, I stopped doing it. I had to kind of break down, come back, met my wife. And then we, uh, we ballooned out of all proportion when we opened in Highland Park is where we opened. It just went crazy. I was back on TV every day. I was back on the doctors once or twice a month. Um, lots of national TV. So yeah, the, the, uh, it went sky high and we've enjoyed success ever since. Thank, thank God for that. Amazing. And so my first question, I think, kind of as the base layer for everything else that we're going to talk about, because you work in addiction, um, how, how do you define addiction? <clears throat> so here we go with the uh, neuroscience that we specialize in. Nobody, 
specializes in neurosciences we do because we only specialize in alcoholic brain with knowledge of, of the addictive personality so alcoholics are born drug addicts are made i'm just going to say that out the bat so i just you know defining addiction as a whole take food drugs sex porn uh, is something that we pick up and we take do it lots of times it becomes a habit and it becomes an addiction alcoholics are born this way so an al the alcoholic, which is a predisposition passed down from generation to generation, if you can't trace it three generations back, you probably abuse alcohol and have the addicted personality. So it's passed down from generation. When an alcoholic takes the first drink, three years old, 10, 15, 20, 40 years old, you set off the disease and you're on a ticking time clock. And then what happens is there's three parts of the brain that are, that are different to the normal drug addicts. The alcoholic has the amygdala, that's different. It also has the hypothalamus, which eventually tells us to drink, and the basal ganglia, which is our repetition, strengthening, confirms. And that's where our relapse lies in the basal ganglia and not at looking at alcohol or being with alcohol. Alcohol has 1% to do with alcoholism and the same with addiction. Mm. So alcoholics are born, drug addicts are made. That's what you said. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. And it's someone, if someone has the predisposition to be an alcoholic, that's just based on their family genes, their history, their parents, all of that. And so how, how would one uh, overcome that if they have noticed that they're, they have a predisposition to maybe be, to have that sort of uh, inclination? Many people start as, a, as we scream and all the time, dialogue, dialogue, dialogue. So if you're, talking to your eight or nine year old about alcoholism in the family, they stand a good chance they can make their own mind up. I mean, it may skip generations. It skipped two generations in my family. Not my brother, my sister, but me is what it got. Um, so most people don't drink with that information. FYI, they're the guys running Google and Amazon and all in huge companies because the alcoholic brain is absolutely a genius brain. And the other people, you know, we start off normal drinkers. And then we, we, we increase our amounts, increase the times, the days, the, the amount. And then all of a sudden we cross over to that invisible line of drinking alcoholically. And then unless we get serious treatment, not just booking into any old treatment center out there, there are some amazing ones we work with, but there are a lot of charlatans out there who keep charging little Johnny 30,000 for his fifth time in treatment. So you got to be careful where you go, but yeah, you can fully recover from alcoholism. I am a recovered alcoholic, period. Does that mean, does that mean I'm cured? Two different words. Look in the dictionary. Yeah, there's no cure for, for alcoholism. There's no cure for the common cold or food poisoning. But the doctor said when I got food poisoning, I'm going to give you a simple step to make sure you never get food poisoning again. Never got it. It's the same with alcoholism. It's a few simple steps out there you've got to do, a routine every day. You'll never drink again. It's not about the alcohol. It's about my trauma. It's about my brain. It's about the way I think about myself and my, my childhood when I was growing up. Mm. So your, your personal story led you into this work? Yeah, 100%. I'm a, I was a chronic alcoholic. I lost absolutely everything. By the time alcohol turned to me, took my first drink at the age of nine. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a musician from a, music, a musician type family. And my musical family had me playing bass on the stage at nine years old. And that's when I took my first drink. I remember nine. it exactly, nine years old. And uh, 
that compulsion just started building up from there there but at the time it was the best thing I ever did because I was nervous for the first half of the show came off my, I was so nervous huge crowd my uncle gave me half a beer I drank that beer and the whole world just changed differently right there and then for me so I knew that this is what's going to get me through the rest of my life and it did for a long time you know it really did for a long time and then it absolutely turned on me yeah because I mean for you, you were you were drinking pretty consistently through all of your studies, through your degrees, through your doctorate, all of that stuff. Um, can you explain kind of how how you did all of that and how maybe people function like this? And then maybe knowing when the problem becomes a problem and you have to do something about it. Well, you get into that routine. It's not quite blackout drinking at that point. It's a case of you're still young. You can remember the days you used to get up and go out to like three o'clock in the morning, get up at six, go to college or work. You know, the older you get, the harder that is to do, believe me. So it was quite manageable, but I did like to drink in the afternoon after school and at nighttime every single day. Now, there's a load of stuff that I went through to get to the point where I knew I couldn't stop drinking. And that was when I became homeless. Lost the kids, wife, houses, cars, everything you can imagine. Parents won't speak to me. Brother and sister disowned me. Friends threw me out. Got to it, and I was 14 months on the streets before I had it. I fell down to my hands and knees and I was crying from my belly. And I was crying because I couldn't stop drinking. And he took all of that because I always thought I was still in control. And there's no way was I in control. Tried treatment centers, tried 12-step meetings, all that stuff. And eventually I would relapse. And that's why I got into the neuroscience of alcoholism. Is that there's something here that nobody knows. There's something happening. Why is this... You know, alcohol, I mean, everything I touched turned to gold, usually. But this alcohol kept knocking me on my ass every single time. And that's why I was so intrigued by it. It's why have full-grown, successful men being torn down this? Why are there millions of people every year dying of alcoholism? And and all, and all the doctors can do is, oh, you need to go to, you know, a 12-step meeting. It's like, I get that, and it's absolutely amazing. But what about the science behind it? We don't have any. That's why I, I like to break the mold. Hmm. Interesting. So, my, um, my question would be then, why is there such a disconnect between the 12-step program and sort of the bridge to actual recovery? Like why I don't more think there is. It? Yeah, I don't think there is a bridge. If we're getting down to brass tacks, the book was that was wrote in 1938 and published in 1939 is one of the best pieces of literature I have ever read. And I studied Carl Jung um, pertaining to the recovery of an alcoholic. So I think what neuroscience does, and here's the crazy part, neuroscience backs up what that big book was saying 80 years ago. Mm. So I encourage people to, to do the 12 steps. I encourage people um, to, to, to read that book because it's very powerful. So in, in, in our industry, the first and second edition is public domain. So we actually use that thought for references. And, you know, it's like, well, this was called, you know, psychic change many years ago, psychic of the mind and mind change. And now it's across neuroplasticity. You know, it's kind of the science is backing up what these guys are right. So it, the, the actual... The actual meetings are, are shit, you know, you know, 98% of the meetings I've been through across the world, there's got to be 70, 80% who are not alcoholics, it's just there for different reasons. Mm 
And what happened to certain 12-step meetings is they buckled under the weight of all these people coming in that weren't real alcoholics. And that's what happened, you know? And, and it's a shame, but it does. But the fundamental basics of that book is mind-blowing. It really is mind-blowing when you get into it, when you understand what, the, what they're trying to say, when you understand the wording of that book, which people don't, unless you are taught by somebody who understands that book, you know, 12-step meetings and, and uh, the, the book, you know, 100% success rate. But I think what they missed out, and <clears throat> no fault of their own, was the deep trauma, because we only found out about trauma, which is the gateway drug, by the way. We only found out deep trauma about five to 10 years ago, and I was still studying it now, of how much effect this over here as a child of an alcoholic or suffering, you know, drinking, but knowing me being an alcoholic, and this here, so this is my action. Why do I always marry the girl that ends up beating me up? And you go back to your childhood and it's there. And it just exaggerates by the time you get into adult life. Once we attack that as well, it's permanent. You know, as long as you follow the rules and, and do certain things every day, it's permanent recovery is what we're seeking. You have to realize that we have a 97% success rate. The nearest one to us is 12%. Now, some might say we had a treatment center the other day. It's only been open four years. Come and try and challenge us. Uh, I've been doing this for over 30 years with just almost 8,000 patients. We have a 97% success rate. We do a five-year case management study on everybody that comes through the door just so we can keep our figures right. So we think we've got it right, but we look at that book as education for us. What's happening in the brain when we feel like we still have a handle over our addiction, even though it's starting to ruin our life? Like, why are we making that uh, that judgment call? Why are we still saying that we have this under control? Because no man likes to admit that he has no control over something. And that's why it's still a dirty illness. Mm. What happens is uh, there's two parts of the brain. The amygdala looks at all the stress and the drama and, and the, the trauma from the past. It's like overlooks everything around us. Um, so the, the basal ganglia is our repetition, strength, and confirms. So if you can imagine it like a big clock, we do this every day, turns into this, we, we want a job, we train for the job, we do it every day, and it becomes a normal working part of the brain. Want to drive a car, same thing, driving a car. We learn how to drive it, it's very hard at the beginning. Now, all of a sudden, after certain lessons and tests and everything, we can back out the driveway, calling our mom, waving to the girlfriend, listen to radio at the same time because it becomes part of that basal ganglia. With alcoholics, if you can imagine a clock, at about 10 till, there's a self-sabotage piece there. That's why we can go, you know, months being sober and all of a sudden we relapse. Not one alcoholic can give you a reason why he relapsed. He can give you a thousand excuses, but he doesn't know. Then you've got a lot, while this is going on over several years, you've got to look at the hypothalamus, now, the hypothalamus is our kind of survival, uh, one of the survival things in the brain. Uh, for layman's terms, it tells us to eat food and drink water to survive. So we go back from birth, we look at what babies do to get food. They put their hand down the mouth or they cry because the tummy hurts. Mom knows to feed them. They know that from birth. You know, what happens to the hypothalamus, because we're born this way, is over a period of time, that might be 20, 30, 40, 50 years, the hypothalamus, the hypothalamus on the alcoholic changes. 
no other addiction does it. Now, what the uh, hypothalamus is telling me is no longer I'm going to keep sobriety and relapsing, but the hypothalamus is telling me is to drink alcohol. Mm. And that's why we can go days, if not weeks, if not months, without food or water, because it's telling us to drink alcohol. So when your brain's telling you to do something, you have no choice. So unless you repair all through treatment, the basal ganglia and the hypothalamus and the amygdala, which is tied into all that stuff, you are always going to relapse if you're a real alcoholic. Mm. So you're, I mean, essentially you're getting to, to the root cause of everything. Yes. Causes and conditions is what we talk about. Alcohol is not the problem. Okay. It's not the problem when we put something in that body because we're allergic to the ethanol, not actually the alcohol. It's the ethanol ill alcohol that I'm allergic to. So I have that obsessive mind and then I take the drink and now my body gets sick and now I take on the allergy. Once them two things are going, it's impossible for me to stop unless I pass out, go to jail, or end up in hospital or dead. It's impossible in full-blown alcoholism. We just can't do it. So, yeah, what's the causes and conditions? What's the root cause of this? And the root cause is always trauma, always where it starts. So you might be drinking already before all the trauma, but the trauma is the one that gets you because we don't know. We just or didn't know enough about trauma. We thought trauma five, 10 years ago was, oh, I was never in a plane crash, so I haven't got trauma. Trauma has to be defined in each individual. It differs. Trauma for somebody might be the loss of a mom. Trauma for somebody else might be a plane crash. You might not be that bad with mom dying. You know, other is worse. My mom said to me one day, you'll never go to college because you're not as clever as your brother. Mm. That devastated me. That was one of the reasons why I gave up on life and went to the streets. What's the fucking point? You know, everyone thinks I'm a loser. That's trauma. So when we go back to childhood, anything less than nurturing as a child is child abuse, especially when it comes to alcoholics. You know, get them off that chair, you stupid idiot. How many times have it all sits in the subconscious brain for years and years and years? And when it comes to fruition is when you're going to go for that girl, that house, that car, that job, and all of a sudden, mom or dad's voice or caregiver will come on saying, you're a waste of time. Why should you bother? When the internal dialogue grabs hold of that, all bets are off. You're not going to do anything with your life and you're probably going to commit suicide or drink yourself to death. So it's it's all just a very deep and real response to the things that happen in our life. 100%. Uh, yeah. You know, 100%. right? Because it's like I, um, I heard Gabor Mate speak about this and he's basically um says that we should sort of maybe this is not specifically for alcohol maybe for a different addiction but sort of thank that part of ourselves because if we didn't choose this sort of substance to sort of alleviate some of this pain and trauma then we would have made the other decision more rapidly like like you know end our own life or do something more catastrophic we decided to take on this sort of addiction over and over again as a response to something. And then it led to the kind of the spiraling out of our life, but we're still alive then to make that sort of choice to, you know, grow or to, to recover from it. Um, is that, is, you know, that's, that's just what I heard him say. Do you find some truth in that? hundred percent apart from alcoholics, 
Back to addictions, 100%. I've never heard him. I don't know who he is. I don't follow other people. Um, but 100%, 100%. You know, we're, we're so far advanced in, in, in our research that people are down here going, what the hell are you talking about? That's not even a thing. We're going, well, we kind of is because we've kind of got a, you know, a success rate over here. But I would 100% agree with that. What a, what a great line that is. You know, we, we catch on these addictions, we might be dead, be, you know, if we hadn't have done that. I'm a big believer in, you know, different personalities. See, my personality, when you when you attack my wife or my dogs or my family, is I will literally put you down and hurt you real bad. Now, if you attack me, I don't know, I can take it verbally, you know, it's not the end of the world. If you attack my friend, I ain't getting involved. So there's that, there's that personality that becomes very violent. You know, I grew up on the projects. I know how to fight and boxing, karate, all that great stuff. The bare knuckle fighting in the early days. But you see, during the streets, I needed that personality. I needed that guy, otherwise I'd have died. Today, I don't need him, but he's always there in the background in case something catastrophic happens. Um, so yeah, I love that. Absolutely love it. Yeah, I mean, I... Uh, I work a lot in, in mental health field and a lot of young people are having a lot of mental health issues. And one of the things that's been popping up most frequently for me is young girls um, dealing with uh, self-harm. And so I related what this guy said about addiction to sort of this sort of self-harm behavior. Like, yes, what you're doing isn't the most healthy response to what's happening in your life but it is better than the ultimate decision of ending your life on sort of this thing, um, especially for young people, right? They feel like the one thing that happens, that's the end of their world because they don't have logs of experience to relate it to, to know that they can overcome it. And so they choose these sort of decisions of self-harm, which is mostly about kind of control, which obviously, you know, but then if they sort of honor that part of themselves, like, okay, I can honor this part of myself. I can thank myself for making this decision instead of this decision there's so much room now to recover and grow and expand their self into their, their highest version. So I think that's quite important. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there are millions of ways to recover depending on how far down that scale you've gone. So we do it our way, but we're open to everybody else. We, ju we just want this to everybody get through the teens and the twenties and thirties, survive and have a great life. Mm. Because that's the other thing we don't know. We don't know how powerful we really are. As human beings, we're born with million dollar minds, but we end up hanging around 10 cent minds. You see, we got to look at our childhood again and go, Hey, what happened to them dreams and aspirations when we were kids? What do you want to be, Johnny? An astronaut? What about you, Johnny? I want to be a, a carpenter. I'll tell you what happened to them. Our friends and family kicked it out of us. Don't be stupid. You can't do that. Don't be silly. You can't do that. It's like they're all were born this way. With I have a video that's inside the brain watching the neural pathways connect. And the one that's connecting to all neural pathways in the head for self, you know, care, for wealth, for health, for great life is already there in the brain. The idea is, is to connect it. That's all it is. You have to start a neural pathway from new when you learn to drive, when you start a new job, you want to fly a plane. But when it comes to health and looking after and succeeding, they're already there. We just need to connect them. And that's what we do. We connect them neural pathways. Everybody can have a life beyond their wildest dreams if they only realized 
how powerful they are. And that's one of my sayings to my patients is if we could swap places for three minutes right now, all your problems would be over because you don't see what the world sees. You only see what you've been told by your caregivers. So if you're a piece of crap, you know, well, you're not as good looking as the, as the kid next door, that becomes our core belief. And trauma revolves around that. And as we grow up, we think we're not good enough. So if you sat at home, guys, and watching this or listening to it, and you feel you're no good, you feel you're not going to amount to anything, you'll never achieve anything, I want to apologize to you guys because somebody's put that there. Mm. You can do anything. Quantum physics tells us we can do anything that we want to do if we can vision it. And that's what we need to do. Vision it, walk over and take the position. Don't be crawling or begging for anything in your life. Stand up, realize who you are, get out there and take what you want. Be kind to people, be loving to people, compliment free people every day and get on with life, man. You know, it's amazing. Join us. It's amazing. It is amazing. I 100% agree with you. Yeah, when you start to realize your own power yeah. in a very real sense, um, <laughs> life becomes uh, incredible. Um, so I have uh, another I don't know if it's a question, but just like a statement. You hear a lot of times, well, I hear a lot, especially on social media, that addiction is a choice. What are your feelings and thoughts on that statement? When it comes to drug addiction and stuff like that, what, I, what we found is, you know, 90, 94% of people on heroin started in the doctor's office on pain meds. That's just the way it is from our practices around the world. It's you said 94%? Yes, Wow. They all come in, started on papers. Nobody walks out for the first time ever and goes, hey, I think I'll try heroin. There's something leading to that. And we and with pain meds, oof, there's going to be some big lawsuits in the future in the next 10 or 20 years, but that's for another conversation. Alcoholism is not a choice. Now, listen, guys, carefully. So drug addiction in the early days, you know, the pain pills from the doctor, if you, if you only knew the knowledge about that, then you wouldn't get addicted to it. That's my personal professional opinion but alcohol and drug addicts show up the same so that's where you got to be careful alcoholics who are born into an alcoholic family have the predisposition do not have a choice over alcohol except in the first few years when they go you know something i know we're alcoholics i'm not going to drink anymore great decision but once we cross over that line you do not have a choice your choices have been taken away from you all your brain is telling you, hypothalamus, is to drink alcohol and screw any other consequences that might happen from that. That's the that's the difference. So at a certain point, yes, but after after the hypothalamus changes, we do not have a choice. No chance. Virtually impossible for us to start once we start. Mm. And that's where obviously getting help, having some sort of intervention comes into play, allowing someone to take you on the sort of journey of of becoming recovered. Yeah, you, you can't recover yourself, guys. I'm sorry, but you can't. You just can't. And if, and if treatment centers, if you're going in two or three times to the same treatment center, neither can they. You know, they, they, there's a way to get to where you need to be. But you've got to be smart about this, guys. You know, don't waste your money to some treatment center or therapist who doesn't know what he's talking about. You have to do your research on these things. But yeah, dialogue is always best. I always tell people, and moms are always asking, what do we do? Dialogue. Start dialogue. If you're at home... You're going through some stuff, start dialogue with your wife, your best friend, your brother. Start that dialogue. Get it out in the open. I, if you say to someone, do you think I have a drink problem? You have a drink problem. Okay? You have to realize that. It's not the end of the world. It can be managed. You know, what, what I have is that daily reprieve. Reprieve means a stay of execution. 
that's the daily thing that I do. It's one day at a time. It's not a, not a 12 step thing. It's a, it's a religious thing. And we found out lately that certain parts of the brain reset every 24 hours. So really we only have today. Fear is based on the past, not the future. Oh, sorry, trauma is based on the past, not the future. And the fear is also done the same. You've got to clear that up before you go forward and realize that fear isn't real. We put ourselves through that. And the only reason we put ourselves through that is because of the trauma that we've suffered in the past. You know, whether we've come out of the house, tried to get a job, parents telling us you're rubbish, you can't, you don't get the job. If you don't clear that trauma up pertaining to that job, then when you're in your 30s, 40s, 50s, you go for that job, your internal dialogue will tell you no. 90-something percent of communication is nonverbal. So if you're walking in there, slump over, head to the ground, you know, even though you want the job, it'll be amazing. You don't get it. That's the reason why. You really have to go back with with uh, with somebody who, who, who deals in trauma and, and addiction and alcoholism to get the best result for you. Because this is about you. It's not about anybody else. You're not doing this for your wife, your kids, nothing. You do it for yourself. And I've seen so many... We put families back together. That's what we do. Right? We put families back together. Uh, four of, I went to take on five patients. Four out of my five patients, as we stand today, are not alcoholic or addict. They're just lost in trauma and the family split up. And they just want the family back. So it's not about the alcohol or drugs. You know? It's all about my internal workings of the internal mind, which sits inside the brain. Two entities, by the way. One is energy, and, and, and you can't see it, you can't feel it, you can't, but the other, obviously you can feel the brain, but the, the mind and the brain are together working. Life takes on a new meaning, man. It's freaking awesome. Amazing. So what if I have a loved one who is deeply struggling and I see them, but they are not receptive to the words I'm saying? Is there any sort of steps I can take or I know it's an individual journey I know they have to come to terms with their own illness and disease and alcoholism whatever they're dealing with and then make that steps themselves but as a loved one is there any way I can be a sort of a vehicle to move them towards seeing what they need to get done yeah once again start that dialogue you know we think you have a problem if he doesn't want help uh, then there's nothing you can do let him drink let him take drugs nothing you can do you want you to become the enemy um, but what we have to do is look at, there's a fine line between helping and enabling. Mm. So you've got to look at that. The best thing my father ever did, who was a quiet man, who never really spoke a lot, was throw me out of my parents' house at 10 or 11 o'clock at night with 20 pounds he gave me, and he closed the door. That saved my life. If he would have carried on letting me stay in the house, this is after the marriage broke up, if you carried on letting me stay there and started to enable, they would have found me dead one day in the bedroom. Then whose fault is it? Well, it's kind of both people's fault. The person for letting enabling the guy and the guy obviously taking advantage and dying of alcoholism so or addiction. So you've got to be really careful. But dialogue, 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 education, education, education. That's what it's all about. There's too many people suffering from addiction out there. There's too many people dying. We did some research in Richardson Hospital. You'll know where that is. Absolutely. And we were allowed to go in every Friday, Saturday night for about a month, I think it was, five, five, five weeks. And then what we did is we, we monitored everybody coming in. And roughly 90% of people coming through the ER door on a Friday and Saturday night were had alcohol or drugs inside their body. Out of that 90%, 70% had it really bad where they were unconscious when they came in. 
So, well, and 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 ten percent of them people died during the time we were there, but they didn't go down as alcohol or drug addiction, especially alcohol. You know, someone suffering from cirrhosis and they die, it goes down as liver failure. It does not go down as alcoholic death. It's the same thing when somebody drinks dry and you find out it's a chronic alcoholic that's been trying to struggle for years. It doesn't go down as an alcohol death. It goes down as a car crash and so on and so on. So the actual figures that we're getting for addiction as a whole are far way lower than you could ever imagine. And people want to question that. And I go, hey, listen, next time you go out, and you meet people anywhere and you start talking about addiction, every single person will say, oh, my brother, oh, my cousin, oh, my auntie suffers from addiction. Everybody knows somebody who suffers from addiction. And if they don't, it's probably them. Mm. Do you think that they frame those certain deaths that way? to keep the numbers lower so people assume there's not a biggest problem as there is this is my opinion not research yes i do 100 how much tax do people the government take on alcohol it's huge absolutely huge if alcohol came out today it will be banned instantly because of the poison that goes into the body and the deaths that occur from that poison so yeah 100 agree with that one I have an interesting story to, to tell you, Rob, based on this. So I uh, stopped drinking alcohol in January. <clears throat> I, I drank like any normal person. I'm 30 years old. I started drinking when I was 18 in college, um, you know, whatever, right? <clears throat> so I had about 10 years of drinking, and it was just a normal thing that I did like kind of anyone else. And then <clears throat> at the beginning of this year, I decided I was going to stop drinking. I just didn't need it anymore. I wasn't really a casual drinker. I wanted to be more productive, feel more healthy have more time and space to do sort of other things. So I just decided to stop drinking. And anytime I go out with my friends or to a bar or with my girlfriend who still drinks occasionally, and people ask me if I want to drink, I say, no, no, thanks. I don't drink. And the looks that you get simply from that statement, Rob, are unbelievable. I've never been looked at with such, I'm, I want to use the word disgust, with disgust before, right? Because people assume one, you stopped drinking because you had a serious issue, but they yeah. don't ever ask because they're scared what the answer might be. And then they just like the conversation, they're just like, oh. Yeah. It's, it's very strange because yeah. alcohol is extremely dangerous, obviously, extremely addictive. Um, but it's the most readily available drug and it's the most one that people use most often. And when you say you don't drink anymore, people just assume the kind of the worst. And it's it's been a very interesting experiment for me over the last uh, like 11 months, kind of experience some, some of those things. But also on a positive note, I feel amazing. Um, and I encourage anyone to sort of do that. Um, if you're feeling like you wanna be more productive, have more time, be more healthy, all of these things. So just wanted to share that story. Yeah, I mean, if you think you have a drink problem, it's kind of coming off for a year. That'll soon tell you if you can, if you've relapsed then obviously. But as a joke, the joke I used to hear many years ago, and it's so true. The guy goes in the bar and his friend says, do you want a drink? And he says, no, I'm an alcoholic. And his friend said, what did you say? He said, oh, I'm a mass murderer. I said, thank God for that. For a second, I thought you said you were an alcoholic. Because that's how we're treated, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's crazy out there. People don't understand. I say more education. I do so many seminars around the world free of charge just to educate people. You know, we're, we're great with moms and, uh, you know, parents of or the spouse of 
the alcoholic addict or trauma victim because we speak to them 100 times a day if need be free of charge we just my, my team will spend hours on the phone guiding them you know we don't we don't sell any business you have to earn our business and very few do you know they're not ready as we want them to be ready so what we do is we offer free advice to people around them because they have to protect themselves it's like we will not take if if, if, a, if a family comes to us and mom a dad and two children dad comes on board obviously the wife has to come board for two days a week we see the alcoholic every day for 90 days for an hour a day the wife has to come on board for two days a week anybody over the age of 18 in the house has to come on board for two days a week otherwise we won't take them because it's a family disease and it's a family recovery as well but we get we get the wives all the time saying well it's nothing to do with me this is his problem and usually it's got to the state when they get to us that's really bad and my therapists say to me they go hey you've got your own trauma i haven't got any trauma well can you explain why your husband's been beating you in front of your children and you've allowed this to go on and not left the house everybody has trauma everybody so it needs to get everybody in the same page you know there's no point in treating the alcohol with the family we often say this the two houses here this is where the family who's the alcoholics drinking let's say they speak japanese somebody takes them out sticks them in treatment now they're going to speak english okay so after he's finished speaking english because his recovery has its own language we take him out and we put him back in the house that speaks japanese have a guess what's going to happen he's going to start speaking japanese again because there's no other way of doing it show me your friends and i'll show you your future you have to surround yourself by two three four guys who are on the same wavelength i was in i lived in dallas for a long time as we spoke before about it i said one day about six seven years ago i said to my crew i said hey guys i'm thinking of writing a book one started laughing the other one said don't be so silly you have to be an author and the other guy said ah, i don't know too much Rob. it takes a long time i didn't write a book came to mm-hmm. san antonio two or three years ago got a new posse around me i said to them one day hey i'm thinking of writing a book one said oh my god i thought we already had books out there the other guy said oh my god i would buy that in an instant so i wrote a book you know going back to the bar situation it's the people you surround yourself with you know especially when you start looking better and you start you know feeling better they, they, they get jealous there's a new generation right now that are coming away from alcohol and drugs new generation that go vegan or they don't eat this and don't eat that and don't put sugar in the body they, i love it there's a there's a there's a, a, a swarm but the bubble will burst in about two years time from the effect if not three years time from the effect of covid with the isolation what do you mean by that the bubble will burst the worst thing you can do to an to a, any person is to isolate them mm-hmm. most people on death row by the time they get to the chair or needle are partially insane because they've never spoke to anybody you know um, it's the same thing with any kind of isolation so what we had to do is we had to isolate ourselves and cover our faces so no identity with another human being even when we go out we could only see the eyes which you take no notice of which the eyes are part of the brain just in case anybody doesn't know it's not the eye the optical nerve in the brain what happened during our lifetime and you know generations and generations is the brain started to bulge out and that's where we get our eyes from they're connected to to the brain which is why we use it in brain spotting and stuff like that it's like this is the way forward you know and everybody needs to be doing this and everybody needs to stand up and go hey if you're not confident enough in the first just go hey i'm allergic or hey i just can't do it right now or hey i'm, I'm back at the gym training and you know all this stuff but I, I got i got sick of that you know i got sick of 
making excuses. So I came out loud and proud some eight, nine years ago. Like everybody knows who I am. Going to Austin and mine of Rob Kelly. Oh, you don't have to say your second name. First of all, shut up. You can't tell me what to do in these rooms. And secondly, I'm always going to say my second name. The only thing I don't do on TV is mention the, 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 uh, the 12-step meeting that I go to. But you can easily find them, guys. It's right at the front of the telephone book. You know, that kind of thing. Because it's, it's pressing confidentiality and anonymity. I, I don't I don't use anonymity, but I so value everybody else that does, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, the world would easily be a much better place if their alcohol didn't exist. Can you imagine? I mean, be inc be incredible. Yeah, it would, you know, but uh, part of our situation. I mean, look, you were saying before about not drinking and stroke. Where I come from, back in Manchester, England, working class, lower working class, uh, there was a tradition. You, you, you went to the pub after work. You had a few beers with the lads on a Friday. Saturday night, you took the wife out drinking. And Sunday afternoon, you drank before work the next morning. That's what you did in working men's clubs and pubs. If you went in there and said you don't drink, they would not trust you. You would be outcast from their little clans because they didn't trust you or you might be an undercover car. But it's just crazy stuff that used to happen in my day is I stepped out of that because I had to. I died. I, I tried to commit suicide seven times on the streets. I died twice. They brought me back. I should have died a thousand times. But people found me. I slipped my wrist. Somebody found Oh, it was just ridiculous the amount of times. So I got sick of trying to, you know, trying to hide that stuff. But I just wish more education would happen. It's like legalizing marijuana. Hey, I'm all for that. Don't get me wrong. You do whatever you want with your own body. But tell the guys what they're getting into. Tell them the side effects of, of, of cannabis. Tell them long-term effects of cannabis. Okay? And when you do that, Mr. Government, go and do it. Legalize anything you want. Just educate the public about what they're getting into. Because people don't. Weed is just weed. It is. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something I've never said on any other show or on any other show or outside this body, is I would rather you take weed than drink. I would take weed every single day over, over any drug, believe me. Yeah, but you have to know what you're getting into. And we don't know the long-term effects of weed. We don't know the long-term effects with lots of stuff out there that's addictive. You can be addicted to the gym. Mm -hmm. You know, you might get really good, you get back in shape. But listen, I've heard this thousands of times. If you're going on vacation with the family, and the first thing you ask is, has it got a gym there? You have a problem. You know, it's all about balance. You've got to balance out this stuff. I mean, I've just lost 100 pounds over the last 11 months. I decided that when I was 60, which was last year, that or a year before, that if I wasn't happy with my life and uh, when you start getting a bit of money and you start doing crazy things like not going to the gym and getting bigger houses and eating more and all that crap, and I put a load of weight on, and I ended up 320 pounds is what I ended up. And when I was 60, I thought, I'm, I'm, I'm done with this. You know, I'm done with it. So by the time I was 61, which is birthday's just gone, I wanted to lose at least 70 pounds. So, you know, I got into it. I got really got into it. And now drinking obviously helped. But uh, yeah, I lost almost 100 pounds. And I feel like you feel. I feel amazing every single day. I mean, practice what I preach. You know, I love that. Because I was telling people to do stuff that I wasn't really doing, eating healthily. You know, there's a load of new science come out about the body 
that really needs looking. It's like it's like oxygen. Oxygen. People just go, oh yeah, just breathe it every day. We only breathe 25% of our lung capacity every day. That's all we do. We don't go, we don't fill our lungs up in our body. When oxygen is present in the body and the brain, any diseases like cancer, like growths or any sort of illnesses, especially terminal, can't grow while oxygen is present, mm. period. Most of us live in a hypoxic state, which means our body lacks oxygen. That's why we get ill. We, we eat certain things as a child, dispositions, we get cancer. A lot of that can be prevented by diet and oxygen as we're growing up, but nobody knows. Nobody knows about the new latest research of what we need to do. We don't eat raw foods anymore. When we go to the supermarket, we go straight in the middle, we're shopping around, tins this, tins that, because it's cheaper. We're, we're, I'm the biggest culprit in the world. You should always shop if you're eating healthily from the walls of any supermarket. Go to the walls, the outside, find all the fresh food to eat, more raw materials. Your life, you probably add about four or five years to your life when you start doing stuff like that. It's all processed foods. It's all uh, fats and, and uh, I'm trying to think of the other word that we can't get into. I can't remember it right now, but trans fats. And then there's an oil that we take every single day. It's every, every kind of food. And uh, it's just crazy bad for us, man. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it's, re it's really about, at least for, you know, trying to become the best version of yourself, it's about building a foundation, right? And all of what you're talking about is basically about, you know, sleeping well, moving well, eating well, and thinking well. And thinking well encompasses a lot of things. It encompasses your breathing, your gratitude, you know, how you think about yourself, self-talk, all that stuff. So you can you can pretty much boil down everything you do in your life to four things. And if you just focus on eating well, moving well, sleeping well, and thinking well, you're going to do and feel incredible. And then other stuff outside of that sort of relationships you know, who you want to be, a partner, um, your job, your purpose, your career kind of come from those foundational pieces. And if we as a society and a culture were to endorse and those things, all of us would then take some personal responsibility over our lives and everything then would become better throughout that. And I think that's that's really important. 100%. I love that. You know, there's four, there's four chemicals in the brain that need to happen every day for us to be happy. If only three happen, we're not happy. We get depressed. The endorphins, which is the gym, move around for 20 minutes, do something. Uh, dopamine, when I say thank you to somebody or compliment somebody, dopamine's re re uh, made in my head and produced, sorry, in my head. I love that. It's like the uh, reward system, pleasure, you know, whenever I give pleasure to somebody or, or vice versa, kind, 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 that'll serve you dopamine. The serotonin is your social belonging, you know, and uh, the oxytocin is the the cuddling hormone. You know, cuddle people, get intimate with people, not sex necessarily, just get intimate with friends and stuff like that. So what happens usually is three out of them chemicals can happen if you're living right. Uh, I talked about COVID. The serotonin is our social belonging and sunlight. Okay, so what happens when you get depressed? You go to the doctor, you say, I'm depressed, doctor, can you do anything about it? He says, yeah, I'll give you an SSR, a slow release of serotonin. You start taking that for a few weeks and months, you're back to normal-ish, and you go on throughout your life taking them. Why isn't anybody asking, why the hell is your serotonin low in the first place? I'll tell you why. The pharmaceuticals run your life and everybody else's life. They run the country. If they can't give you a pill or a 30-day stay somewhere, they don't want to know. 
And that's one of the biggest tasks we've, we've been going through is that they don't want to know. They'd rather stick someone in treatment for 30,000 a month, then bang them on drugs. There's a famous, famous rehab center, uh, not far from you, uh, that bring people in at a, at a crazy price, like 70,000 a month. And then what they do is they start giving them these drugs for antidepressants and not drinking and take this. Then they end up staying six months. Then they talk them into a 12 month stay. Very unethical. We would never do that. You know, so you've got to look at your surroundings. Look at what you're taking in your body. Why not live life to the full? Alcoholics and addicts get two lives in one lifetime. Why would you mess the second one up? I didn't. I don't care. Well, you know, I, I signed a million dollar deal on the on the uh, medical center in, in Highland Park for offices. My friend said, how do you sleep at night time? What the fuck can they do to me that I haven't done to myself? What? Mm. what? I got, I'm not scared of anything. I've, what are they going to do? Take the office off me? Big deal. You have to start living this life, man. Even if you're not an alcoholic, or you have to start looking at your life. Can I do better? The, the answer is 100% can. The only difference between you and the guy at that top of the office, the CEO on a 200 grand a year, is he believed he could do it. And you don't, you know? And the trauma is playing into it, that you're not good enough, never tall enough, thin enough, blonde enough, or rich enough. It's false. It's not true. You know, these these... these ideas are, are, are blown into the working class people that I can't do that. Well, you grow up and my dad used to dig roads for the gas board, put the big pipes down. That was my future. I didn't want that. I, I There's no way did I want that. I wanted something else. And I, after addiction sorted it out and I came out and had a spiritual awakening and got on my feet again, uh, I shot for the stars every single time. It's like, well, we start this practice. Now we have four practices around the world. You know, you can you can live your dream. I have a famous saying, I'm dreaming of living instead of living. I'm living the dream instead of dreaming of living. Because that's all I did on the streets. I used to walk past people's houses, see them all gathered around for tea or dinner and think, oh my God, I just, I would love once, just once to be able to do that. I was dreaming of not living and you got to turn that shit around, man. You know, you've got to start living the dream. Everybody can, everybody, unless you have a, a brain illness or, or really... Uh, illness that you can't get around. Everybody can do this. If I can do it, anybody can, by the way. And a lot of people say that, but it's true with me. How do you come off the streets begging and fighting every life, every day for your life, you know, you know, begging for money and food for over a year to where I am today? It's virtually impossible, people say. No, it's not. It really isn't. Get a, get a higher power. Get a God, supreme being, Uncle Jimmy up there, whatever it is to believe in, and go forward under the impression that they're looking after you. And get rid of that trauma, get rid of that fear as you move forward and you watch your life start taking off. I will guarantee it. Otherwise, I'll send. If that, if you start to do this, guys, and you don't, I'll send you $100. I'll send you $200 if it doesn't happen. Because it does. It's the way human body works on the brain. You don't have a choice over it, by the way, guys. If you if you follow what me and Aaron was just talking about, you don't have a choice but to be happy. You don't have a choice to improve your life because it happens. That's the way we're supposed to live. Mm -hmm. We're not supposed to live in fear. Watch the TV. Oh, my God. It just started warring. Oh, my God. If you turn the TV off in your house, the news off in your house, and just watching the nice little thrillers and dramas you like watching, turn the news off, 80% of your problems will be done overnight. What we see is how we feel. You know, make things happy around you. Build your own lifetime. When me and my wife got married eight years ago, because we've both been through some shit marriages, 
we had an argument two or three days then after our marriage about something stupid and and she said to me because i said this is this is bullshit i'm not doing this anymore and she said that's the way marriage is and i said says who who's making these rules i don't like these rules we're going to change the rules of marriage everybody that sees us together everybody that comes to the house because we have a lot of people at the house we just want a marriage like you and janet you can have one make your own rules up i'm surprised she hasn't come in the office and threw a sock at me something like that to put me off because i'm usually when i'm on live tv we laugh we dance in the bathroom we joke make your own life there's, there's not a lot of rules around here you can start making your own rules like be the best father best son best husband i want to better myself i want to if you earn 30 grand a year guys start hanging around the guys that earn 40 grand a year you'll be earning 40 grand a year in no time again show me your friends show me your future create that world around you that will build you up and take you to the next level and, and build people up all the time and compliment people because nobody knows about four years ago i'm in the office at dallas they've got a new nurse there we've got a staff of 15 guy comes in suicidal first session suicidal he told them i was going to kill myself this morning he came in with me he went out and one of the nurses says oh my god See what Dr. Kelly did? That guy was suicidal. He came in, he's skipping out, he's waving to everybody, he's hugging the receptionist. That Dr. Kelly's amazing. And the other nurse says, I know. Have you told him that? Oh, no, I, I mean, he knows. Obviously, nobody knows. Nobody knows. You have to tell people that they're good. They don't, we don't know, guys. You know, like our journey, what we do, what we do. I mean, it, it, sometimes it's lonely. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's like, I'm not going to do this podcast anymore because nothing's happening. You know, I'm not helping anybody. Four people tuned in yesterday. It's very disheartening. Then four people, one of them might got something out of it. Out of that mm -hmm. one person, the girl who was listening at work might go home in a great mood. Now the, now the husband's in a great mood. Now the mother-in-law calls. And because them two are in a good mood, now the mother-in-law's in a good mood. Then the husband, and it just goes on and on and on and on. It's just hundreds of thousands of people we affect a week or a month because of the ripple effect. And that's why we have to stay true to our cause. Yes. Everything, everything compounds and aggregates everything. So that's why when we have these sort of conversations or someone says that you matter, it's much deeper than you might ever realize. It's much deeper than you might ever realize how many things you interact with, how many people you touch. And that can be a, in a, in a good or a bad way. So we want to strive to try and make that positive impact. Now, not every day is a good day or whatever, some things happen, right? But you can sort of have this ability to overcome and be resilient through those things by having this sort of mindset about you, that I matter deeply, I have a worth about me, every interaction is important, everything I do has downstream effects and it compounds and aggregates and I don't know who I'm affecting in a deep, deep way. And it's especially true for this podcast, like you mentioned, right? This is episode 128 and um, you know, we have a much larger viewership than I did at episode one. And yeah. it's incredible because all I did was this. I just wanted to be consistent. That was my only goal. Release an episode every Tuesday and see where it takes you. Yeah. Because no I, other I time in, um, because no other time in my life do I get to have an uninterrupted conversation, right? Cool. Me and you, that's it. Yeah. We've never met before. Now we're, now we know each other. The phones are away. This conversation is meaningful and impactful for me. Yeah. And that's the beauty of it all. And all the people listening, you know, there's like, 
you never know what, what a, a kind word does to somebody. You never, if you're in a bill of Perry with people, try this next time, guys, when you're out, if you don't believe me, find somebody, sneakers are always great because it's an easy look. Find somebody coming towards you who has nice sneakers on, even if you don't go, hey man, nice sneakers. He'll go, oh, thank you, man. And then when he walks past you, turn around and watch him. He'll look down at your sneakers two or three times walking away. Nice sneakers, two words, ten, five, five seconds, one second, whatever it is, you to change his life. Because you never know, everybody goes through their own shit every single day. So there was a true story. There was a guy in California who wanted to, he wanted to kill himself. And his idea was he'd walk to the Golden Gate Bridge and he'd throw himself off. And one day he decided that was it. And he went and he got to the Golden Gate Bridge and he threw himself off and he died. And the police got him out, got his address, went back to his apartment to find out what's going on. When they got into the apartment, they found a suicide note on the kitchen table and it read this. I'm going to go and kill myself and throw myself off the bridge unless somebody says hi, hello, comments or starts talking to me on the way. Nobody did. Nobody's trapped mm -hmm. in their own shit. If one person, that could be you guys, go, hey, buddy, have a great day, or how's your day? Hey, nod. Whatever it is, you don't know how it affects it. And in my experience, it's huge. Absolutely huge. The amount of times I've gone into a Charleston meeting and somebody's been there and after the meeting, they come over and they said to me, hey, Rod, do you remember me? I go, ah, to be honest, buddy, I don't. Well, it was like seven years ago, I was in here and you said something to me and it was crazy what you said. And you looked at me when you said it. I have no idea I looked at him, but I said it, you know, in, in a share that I was doing. He told me he was going to go home, get a gun and blow, blow his head off. But because he heard what I said, and I happened to glance at him around the room, he thought I made eye contact and was speaking just to him. That mm. guy was now six years sober. He has a family, he has a couple of kids and a great job. That's how important it is to say something. When I go into an elevator, elevator is the only place in the world where 10 people can be in there all looking in a different direction and nobody's saying anything. <laughs> yeah. I'm that annoying guy that comes in. Is everyone good? Oh, yeah, yeah. Is everyone on a great day? Yeah, oh, awesome. And I come compliment and I walk out. That's what life's about. When you start doing that, watch your own life take off. Everybody's a leader and everybody needs a leader, especially these days. If you're listening to this podcast, and I'm telling you guys, it's not coincidence. As I laugh when I say that because for several years I thought it was. There's a reason why you're listening or watching this podcast because I'm speaking to you. Yeah, Mrs. Whatever your name is going timid to work every day thinking nobody notices you they do most of them want to be you most of them like the way you dress most of them want to say kind things but they don't know how to because they've got their own trauma going on there's two kinds of people in this world those that love you for who you are and those that want to be you period that's it everybody can be the one that everybody wants to be like you have to know your worth people all the time are and call me up counselors, therapists, doctors. Rob, how much should I charge an hour? My answer is always the same. How much are you worth? And they go quiet. They go, well, how much do you charge, Rob? Oh, I charge between $650 and $1,000 an hour. Wow, that, that's a lot of money. It's what I'm worth. Right. Period. Uh, now, we obviously, when people come to our, uh, uh, we have a sliding scale. I've worked with people as always, you know, 150 but... 650 to $1,000 is my rate, you know? And because I'm worth that. You're worth this at home, guys. 
If you're working for somewhere that's paying you $8.99 an hour and you want better, take steps to do it. Don't think that this is your lot in life. This isn't your lot in life. I don't care where you are and what you're doing. This is not your lot. You can have much better. You can, if you, if you want a miracle to happen, like getting older your son, take steps to do that. My youngest daughter to this date has never contacted me. She was one when the authorities took them off me because I was been in a stupor for a couple of days and they're not being fed or changed diapers. But my three-year-old, two or three years ago, contacted me on, on Messenger. And we I couldn't believe it. After all in 20 odd years, I flew back over there, me and my wife on the next plane. We got outside the door. She opened the door. I was so nervous. I was crying. We hugged, we sobbed. Then she said, I've got something to show you. And she called me dad. Mm. Oh, my heart nearly broke. I went into the living room. She handed me my three-month-old granddaughter. These wow. are the things that happen in recovery. These are the things that happen when you start being kind to people. If, you, if you're in a shit place one day and you just think the end of the world, first of all, you can start your day over even at 10 o'clock at night. Just stop, pause, and say, I start my day over now. Your day will instantly change. Second thing is really important is keep a rubber band on your wrist. Any crazy thoughts, self-sabotaging, negative thoughts, snap that band on your wrist. It'll reset neural pathways in the central nervous system. And three, believe. Believe God, universe, Uncle Jimmy up there wants something better for you. Because while you're wallowing in your own crap sat at home, thinking, can I, can I, should I? Oh, it's not, time's not ready yet. You'll never be ready, by the way. Somebody else is dying because of the kind words you, sh you should say to me in two months' time that God's put in front of you or something. And we set it on thinking we don't mean anything. Every single person means something. Every single person can change the world. I only work with people that are going to change the world. If you're not changing the world, what are you doing? You might as well go drink, take drugs, and you know, see what happens. But listen, we have to change the world in our own way. That's what life's about. Life has to have a meaning. You have to have a purpose. Get a nice routine in your day. Make sure you compliment people. Do your mirror work. Do all this great stuff to build yourself up and believe it. It's simple steps. Believe it. Because you've had, you've, had, you've had glimpses of success in your life, and the only reason why you didn't continue is because of the trauma from childhood. It always self-sabotages. You always mess it up for whatever reason. Like when I used to date a girl, I never dated girls, by the way. I took hostages. I want to make that clear from the outset. But if things were going too well, I would self-sabotage you. And I get that a lot with, with women is when they're brought up in an alcoholic family and they see dad hit mom or be terrible or shout at her or dis disregard that she's even there, the, 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 the baby or the girl, young girl will grow up expecting that to be the norm, okay? So if they go into a chaotic, dysfunctional marriage, they find that comfortable. What they will, and they'll stay there way beyond they should do. But what happens if they find a decent guy who, you know, can give her love and protection, she will self-sabotage that because it doesn't feel right. And mm. the way I explain that is, there was a young girl snatched up the streets in Manchester in the 80s, early 80s, blonde hair, blue eyes, schoolgirl, 17 years old. And there was a huge manhunt for her and they couldn't find her. So they obviously backed off the manhunt and one, one person had it in the cold case files. She was presumed dead. But nine months after the incident, a police officer in a car was following another car down the road with a broken signal light indicator. So he pulled him over 
And back in the day, they because he had no, uh, you know, iPhone or anything, so they used to find out and go, "Hey, what's in the what's in the boot or the trunk?" And if you say well, it's a hammer and a pair of shoes and a coat, and it was, it's probably your car. And on you would go. So he opened the the, the, the the trunk of the car and he found stolen screwdriver. Just one stolen screwdriver had the price still on, no receipt. So the lads go back to the house, no search warrant. Sure enough, there were lawnmowers, there was drills that he'd been stealing every week. And just before they left, they saw a huge box in the corner, 12 foot wide by four foot high, big padlock on. And he said, we know you've got more stolen stuff in there. So they smashed the lock off, they opened it, and there was the 17-year-old girl that snatched up the street. She was alive, she was beaten, she was battered. He used to take her out every day, abuse her, restroom, food, and put her back in the box several times a day. The policewoman took her coat off, leant down, held the woman as she stepped over, or the, little, the girl, teenager, stepped over the box and she put a coat round her and said, everything's going to be okay. What's the first thing she did? She got back in the box. Wow. That's how our mind works. We go back to that painful, safe place that becomes a safe place, even if it's violent, even if it's, you know, derogatory, even if you're in relic, we get back in the freaking box. That's the way our mind works. We have to get rid of that box, smash it down, make sure we never get back in. But that's our relapse. That's our trauma is we always get back in that box. And unless you get out of it, smash it up and walk on, do your work, you will always be in that box. Because you go to dysfunctional families, man. It's, it's phenomenal how many traits we pick up from our parents or caregivers. Like I, I have, I don't know, 70, 80, 90 pair of sneakers. Okay. And I never thought about it. I just, oh, I like them sneakers. But I mean, when you start getting, a, you know, a little bit of money in your bank, go buy these anywhere. Over the years, I've collected that. So I, I have a therapist every week that I see, just for my own sanity. And she says, it's just general conversation. She says, how many pairs some nice sneakers? Every day you come in new sneakers. I said, yeah, I've got like 80 pairs or something. She went, interesting. And I was like, no, I, ju I just buy them. I just buy them <laughs> from, you know, the, the stores. Thinking, oh shit, what's she going to tell me? And she's telling childhood, what, what the sneakers or shoes did you wear when you were childhood? So I said, oh, my mom and dad could only afford shoes twice a year. And if holes were in the bottom of the shoes, she used to cut around a cardboard box and slip the, the, the cutout into the shoe so my sock would cardboard then shoe. But on the way to school with the snow, they used to cold and snow. The, the cardboard would, would obviously melt. And my, my socks had holes in as well. And she said, how many times did you do that? I said, I did it every day for about a year. We only got shoes twice a year. And then she said to me, does your mom and dad go, go out to the pubs, the bars every, you know, any time to, to, you know, just to relax? I said, oh, yeah, every Friday and Saturday night they go out. And this is what she says to me. She says, does your mom and dad go out and spend all that money with holes in their socks and shoes? Well, I just started crying. Mm -hmm. I was like, she said, that's child abuse, Rob. They could afford to go out every night drinking, but they couldn't afford to buy shoes for you. That's why you have 80 pairs of sneakers. Everything we do as a child comes out in our adult life. And to put the two together is almost impossible without a third party pointing that out to you, which I thought was really interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for sharing all your knowledge and insight. That was awesome. <clears throat> I have one final question for you, Dr. Rob. 
So imagine that you were going to be able to put up a billboard and a million people would see this billboard every single day. What would you put on that billboard? Empowered people, empower people. Fantastic. I just got to top my head. That was a great question. That's a brilliant question. Yeah, I would, I would love to see that every day on my drive to wherever I'm going. Yeah, me too. That's awesome. Yeah, fantastic. Right, I'm going to make that. I'm going to do that one day, and I'm going to send you a photograph of it. <laughs> let's, let's put it up in play now. There we go. Yes, yes, yes. Awesome. <clears throat> um, but I want to I want to touch on one last thing um, before I let you go. Um, you do a special thing with your book um, that I think is really important to touch on. So why don't you tell people about that? So we have a book for sale. It's uh, what, my, what my daughter said to me last time I saw her as a child was, Daddy, Daddy, please stop drinking. So it's on the website. Go in and buy it. It's great to read, great to pass on. Um, if you don't like it for whatever reason, uh, text me or find me or call the, the, the company. I'll, I'll, I'll send you $9 back. Um, just pass it on to somebody else. That's the deal that we do. We also, uh, the only company in the world that offer a money-back guarantee whilst follows in our program if you relapse after our program. So that's what we do. And the other thing I want to do, because people love this, the, the few times I've done it, is guys, if you're sat at home and you're in that place that we, me and Aaron have been speaking about, you know, the low place and the suicide thoughts and everything, here's my personal phone number, 214-600-0210. Always text first. And here's the offer. If you text me, I will call you back, obviously. But I'm very busy, but I will call you back. And I will give you a 10-minute pep talk that will change your life. You see, that phone number comes to me, not my assistants, not my front desk, not my, it comes to me. And if I don't change your life in 10 minute pep talk, I will also send you a hundred dollars and thank you for your time. After the years I've been doing that, not one person has asked for the hundred dollars because all you need is a third party telling you the truth about yourself and it will change. Amazing, amazing. Well, thank you, Dr. Rob, for the person you are, your, the work you're doing, um, the space you're holding for people. Thanks for joining me. I really, I really, I loved it. I love this conversation. And so you have a beautiful website that people can go to to find out everything you're doing. That website will be linked in the show notes and in the email and on the website. And thank you, Dr. Rob. Really appreciate it. And thanks everyone for listening or watching. Please subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple. But most importantly, most importantly, take the biggest idea you heard from today and go do the work, put it into your life, be the person you're capable of being. Lots of love and we'll see you next time. Cheers.